Welcome to the Writer's Room, where funny writers who sit in funny rooms and write funny words for other people finally get to talk. Here's your host, me, Jeff Cesario. We're talking to Greg Proops, uh, brand new album out, uh, French Drug Deal, killer stuff. And we're talking about the writing process for stand-up and for improv. Of course, we all know you have a great history with whose line is it anyway. Uh, but in terms of stand-up writing, do those muscles cross for you? Do the muscles you developed doing improv, uh, do you find them helpful when you're on the stand-up stage? Are they shared? Yes, because it gives you the confidence to go into the unknown. And uh, I, you were, I just went to the Wayne Shorter tribute here in Los Angeles oh, wow. a couple weeks ago. And Herbie was there and, and it reminded me of that story that you just told. And then Wayne Shorter said stuff about playing too. Like you got to be willing to jump in and just, yeah. Because Wayne Shorter was a truly individualistic uh, jazz musician. And then he's in Weather Report, which might be the biggest group of fucking crazy people that were ever like in a group together. Yeah. All of them are like insane, almost cartoon like characters of creativity and imagination. Yeah. You can't imagine if you would, if you were to write a Jacob Astorius character, you couldn't. No, it, people wouldn't buy it. Like he's barefoot on stage, dancing in the sand, and he's you know playing melody on his bass. And 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 well, now we're really into jazz. I hope your fans are jazz. <laughs> They're gonna they, learn it. I, that's I never, I never uh, hated the um, analogy between jazz and comedy because, first of all, in the fifties and early sixties, as you know, they were really analogous. And yeah. secondly, so many great comics from that era were big jazz buffs, and and I do think that the similarity is there. It, it, yeah, comedy is more like poetry in so much as it's a spoken word art form that's recited and you write it down on a piece of paper. However, it's a lot more like jazz in terms of the extemporaneousness of what's going to happen in the room absolutely dictates where you're going with this. Because if someone throws a fucking wrench into it, you can't just stop and go, I'm going back to my material now. You know, you. Yeah, no, you got to fly and, and you've got to have spent some time exercising those muscles because it's all muscles, man. When you're improvising, it's all, I remember. Uh, learning how to sight read music mm. as a percussionist. And it had never dawned on me. There was a thing to it. And my buddy, again, from Kenosha, great drummer, Steve Houghton, went on to drum with Freddie Hubbard and the Tashiko Tobacco and big band. Wow. And Herman. He was an unbelievable player. And he said, you just keep your eyes ahead of what your body's doing. So your brain and your eyes are two seconds ahead and you just don't give a fuck what your body's doing. You instructed it. And if it got it, it got it. And if it was wrong, everybody's onto the next thing. It's going too fast yeah, yeah. for anybody to stop and go, was that out oh, there? They're just playing and it sounds great. So just keep your head and your eyes ahead of your body, I thought, wow. And I still couldn't do it in music, but I could do it with my mouth. And I thought, okay, right. well, I'm going to go that direction. No, I think you're right. It's the, also the confidence of knowing that you can do it. And it, you don't have it when you, when you first, first, first start, you have the confidence of the ignorance of like, I'm not afraid of anything because I don't know what to be afraid of, you know? And then I have you reach nothing a, left in my life. 
<laughs> yes. This is it. So I'm unafraid. <laughs> right. And then there's a certain point in the middle of it where you're like, wait a minute, I should work on this more. And then I've reached the point where I'd like to be able to think that I could do something in the daytime and talk about it that night and make it into 10 minutes of material with jokes, with adjectives, with descriptive passages, with a point, with a, maybe even callbacks and everything. Um, with the craft, like you say, with the muscles. The, it, it, uh, Durst said to me, very Will Durst our Betty said to me, um you you he said you you have that cliche ability to to tell a story funny, make anything funny. And that and that's the the uh, you know the the cliche of it, but I mean like the ability to that's kind of where I'm coming from now as a comic. I want to be able when I do stand-up gigs like I did a couple uh I did an outdoor event for our, my friend, Brian Copeland. He lives in San Leandro. They had like a big outdoor comedy day thing, you know, and you can't really, I, I mean, I riffed of course, cause there was stuff right. going on, but I had to do material and I did it, you know, and yeah. uh, I have an act, I have written stuff and everything, but really I love that. Like you were talking about your friend when you're, Mind is disengaged from almost not disengaged, but like you're engaged, but you're walking backwards. So you're, you don't know where you're going. You know where you've been. And sometimes like they always talk about songwriters. I know everything's music with us. The analogies were, well, you think yeah. we'd use comedy analogies. Um, uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> that a song came out of nowhere. You know, yeah. like I, I, I was asleep and I woke up and I'd written Satisfaction or whatever that I've read that more than one time. What's yeah. his name? Adolf Caesar, who wrote uh, T for Two, No, No, Nanette, said that he was late for a party and his, he was with his partner. And the, he said, can we go? And his partner's like, we got to finish this song. And he went, picture you upon my knee, just T for Two and T for T. <laughs> And that's just channeling the universe. Well, to bring it all around, it was the great Mike Nichols, who was a ridiculous improv comedian with Elaine May and uh, unbelievable writer and director, said he doesn't necessarily put nose to the grindstone all the time because he trusts his subconscious mind to continue to work on the issue when he's not consciously working on the issue. And I think that's what's happening in moments like that for Adolf Caesar, that brain, it, those gears are working, whether you're eating dinner, sleeping, yeah. it doesn't matter. And then something relaxes and this fucking Kawasaki just comes out of the back of your brain and just, and it's there. And you, and that's when Tom Petty goes, I wrote it in 18 minutes. Yeah. It's the biggest hit I have, you know, what a process. It's absolutely, it's, it's, what did Whistler say? Like they, uh, he did that painting of a, the night sky and it's a firework and it's blue and there's one dash of color and uh, Ruskin or whatever, the critic um, said it was shit. You know, it looked like a child did it or whatever. And they went to court and he won some sort of Pyrrhic, you know, nominal one pound victory or whatever. But he said they got him on the stand and he went, I didn't just dash that off. That was a lifetime that went behind that. Wow. So I, I sat down to paint it, 
And my intention was, and so when he did it, it's just, and you think, when I'm at my funniest, I'm not thinking about, you're thinking always because the super ego is there about what you're doing, but it's coming out and you're, and then you're not, what's the word, uh, 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 censoring, you know, like when I've been the improv group with the guys and I'm at my funniest, it's almost out of my mouth before I've thought of it. And that's a real weird phenomenon. And with the standup, I can almost get there like a jazz cat, which is what I really want to do and just blow, you know, uh, the problem is you can't just make noise. <laughs> yeah. You, you have to articulate words and you have to make right. sense of sentences. Well, you're in total command of the entire energy of the room as a stand-up. In improv, there are other people. Yeah. And you, you can't and so turn that it up shared and responsibility may yeah. allow you to get that half step further ahead. So how, also, do you, how do you wind up? In improv, doing it to a point where you're one of the 10 people in the world people think of when they think of improv comedy. Right. Fall into whose line? I, I fuck Jeff. It's been the biggest thing in my life. Like I didn't think of it. I didn't make it up. I didn't create it. Uh, I was doing improv in San Francisco in a group with Mike McShane and a bunch of other kids. And uh, we were called Fault Line. And then that broke up, as all groups do. And I started doing stand-up on my own, encouraged a lot by Will and Debbie Durst and whatnot, San Francisco scene in the 80s. No. And um, then they came to audition. And I don't think I'd done improv for a year or two, at least, maybe more, when they came to audition in San Francisco. That was pure chance because Dan Patterson, our producer, who's been the producer, by the way, we're on to 30, 32 years now or something with the TV show. Wow. Uh, yeah. Only the Today Show and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, price I was right. say, yeah, and the price is right. Um, or longer. Uh, he went to school at University of Chicago, so he liked Americans. And after they did the show for the first season on British TV, he decided they needed some Americans to kind of change the energy because British improv was very much like nobody was high-fiving. They would shake hands with each other. Everyone was afraid to step out and break the scene open. No one would break the fourth wall. They wouldn't, you know, as my friend Jim Sweeney, the great British improviser said, you must learn all of the rules of improv in order that you break them. And so then the humor happens when I know I'm supposed to say yes and, and I know I'm supposed to take your idea and run with it. But if I don't and I go another way with it, then the real fun begins. And so it was all pure chance. Then I got on the show and that was 89. Then they did a Christmas show, believe it or not. And we all went back over in six of us on that one. The most unsuccessful Who's Line episode of all time that they never, ever show. It was so horrible. Um, and then I ended up on that show for 10 years. And every year, Richard Braun, who's the keyboard player from that show and my best friend, and I would say to each other, surely they can't do this again because British shows don't run at all. British shows, you know, the office, uh, Ab Fab, right, whatever, yeah. you, two years, maybe two years. They get also, episodes and they go, that's it. That's the best. Right. Let's, let's not get into the writer's strike. But the other difference was in the old days, a British show was generally written by the person who created it and right. maybe one or two other people. Whereas an American sitcom, as you know, there's a yeah. platoon in there. 
Yeah. Uh, so I got lucky on that. And then it got picked up in America because Ryan got on Drew's show and Ryan was on the British one. Ryan showed Drew the Ryan British style. show. Yeah. And then Ryan and Drew took it around Hollywood. And of course, a lot of people had a lot of great ideas for it. Like, why don't we write the jokes? And then uh, this is, you know, it show business is awesome, as you know, Jeff. Uh, the only the only business in the world where if you wrote your own life story and wanted to star in it, they would read a bunch of other people before you. Yeah. It, because someone might be better at you than you are. Absolutely. Yeah. So I would love to the- see a a movie about you, you about Drew go, going out and pitching. Yeah. Line. With by the way, with tape from the English show. They, you could show feeling. them what yeah. the show was. Here's the structure. Yeah. Here's how it's, it works. Here's people working it. And yeah. here's the laughs. Yeah. And then, all right, hang on. Yeah. That gives me an idea. Oh, it does, does it? <laughs> <laughs> That's so then we got lucky and that was on. And then it went on ABC Family and blah, blah, blah. And then that went off the air. And then they bragged it back on the CW like seven, eight years. We shot again this year, Jeff. There's a whole new season coming out. I'm not kidding. We're in our millionth year. And I've been on the road with Ryan. Drew started us as a live group in like 99. He, uh, we were shooting an episode and Drew said, um, hey, Greg, uh, hey, man, well, I'm going to go to Vegas. Uh, you guys, you want to go to Vegas with us? And so we all went to Vegas and did a giant, terrible improv show. And that sort of started our group. <laughs> there was so many of us on stage, 10 people in an improv group. I called it the Preakness because you you could bet on the field at to, one point, like they had to wheel we'll, out the, the second we'll eight of us get in there for four, <laughs> <laughs> just like impossible to be funny with that many people in a group. Oh my god! And I agree with uh, Clockwork Orange. Four to six. It, it, if you can fit us in a car, then we can be funny. If, wow. if it has two cars, then then we're a, a barnstorming baseball team from the thirties. Uh, and th- so yeah. I got lucky. I really got lucky. I, the other week I was in San Francisco. Uh, with the boys and we were playing Davies Symphony Hall, right? We had a really beautiful fucking concert hall in San Francisco. Dream come true for me. You know, other pianos in our dressing rooms and pictures of Zubin Meda and, 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 uh, uh, um, Evo Poglarovich and Leontine Price on the, and fantastically Leonard Nimoy and went up on the walls. Uh, and, uh, these kids came up after and they go, we're in an improv group. Do you have any advice for us? And I said, well, there's me and about eight other guys that make any money doing this. <laughs> so if you're looking at it as a living, you're going to yeah. want to have other stuff going on, like writing and other things, acting, whatever, because I, I don't know how many people make a living at improv, but I know that four of us work together in a group and then Wayne and Jonathan Mangum in his group and then Colin and Brad and his two-hander. And after that, yeah, beyond that, it starts to get thin. Uh, I mean, a living, you know what I mean? A living enough to live on. You're not going to do it in improv. Now, is there, that's luck, man. Is there a writer's room or a premise room or, or is it just, Everybody understands the basic rules of improv and everybody trusts each other to have thorough knowledge of that. And let's go out and fly. How much structure is put on a Who's Line episode? 
Oh, when we're taping or when we're on the road? Uh, when, when you're we're taping. Both. Okay. What's the difference? Uh, on, when we tape, uh, Dan came up with a, a, a formula over the years. Uh, when we first shot, as I recall, like the first episode I was on, we shot for maybe two and a half hours, two, three hours, and got like one episode out of it. Well, a British episode is what, 20? How long is a, a half hour on American TV? 22 and a half? Two. 22. 22. And a British one in those days was, I think, 24. So there was a little error, a little error. So they could actually show us read the credits as opposed to America where all of a sudden we're up in the corner and the credits are rolling by as fast as humanly possible. Um, uh, and then after a couple seasons, he started to determine, uh, on paper. So he will have a clipboard with him and a, and a big page. So when, like, for instance, let's cut to the last season, which was, as I said, the 34th millionth season of the show. We'll get a piece of paper before we go when we arrive and it'll have a list of games on it and it'll be 20 something games, right? Uh, moving people, first date, uh, newscast, whatever the fuck it is. And uh, 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 greatest hits, the song game. Right. So and, these are in, these are improv games with their own miniature individual structure in them. Yeah. So each one we know how they play. And then there's an order. He's made an order. And then at the bottom is four or five alternate games, which if we have time, we might do or we might put them in if blah. So when we started taping with Who's Line, he'll go out and warm up the crowd, which by, I mean, he's British and not funny. So he'll berate the crowd for a while. And then, uh, um, and they're all enthusiastic at this point. And then, <laughs> then we play the game for real in real time. Uh, so Aisha comes down. It used to be Drew before that club comes down, sits at the desk, boom, right into the first game, right off the card, right? She is on her desk, a buzzer. And a bell to end games with, right? And the, all the cards that have all the games on them in order. So she's literally reading off of a, 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 a index card, right? And it'll go. Oh, the first game today is uh, 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 movie directors. Greg, you're directing a movie, and the movie's about this. And Colin and Wayne and Ryan are are the actors, and then Ryan enters as a as a frantic husband looking for whatever. So boom, we jump up, we do it. Now, this is where the craft comes in. Uh, if it's shitty, which happens, or we tank, or someone says cocksucker or something, we stop <laughs> and we reset right there. So we go right back to it. Wow. So we don't play the whole game out and then, oh, fuck, let's tape for five more hours and see if we can pull two minutes out of this. We right, right. tape for this long and then go boom, but cut. Begin again, go. So then we get it all right. So each game is maybe two minutes, a minute and a half, two, three minutes, maybe. And then like a game like a uh, world's worst or uh, uh, what's the other one? Scenes from a hat. Uh, she'll take a scene out of a hat, right? And she'll go, ah, oh, um, uh, wor uh, worst person to take to a dinner party. So that one, we're all standing on the side. We pop into camera, right? Well, I come in and I go, oh, i sorry. I didn't know you weren't supposed to park your iguana on the, and then boom, that comes out. The next person comes out. So that one is really modular. So however many we do, you can cut out all the ones that don't 
because we're there's four dedicated cameras on the floor and a jib and then this is the science jeff every scene we do so we do the games and then at the end we get up and we sit down a thousand times right and that's the boringest part of the taping for the last 45 minutes or an hour uh greg and colin get up and do this so me and colin get up we stand on our marks cut go back sit down again Wayne and Ryan do this. Where they get up, they stand on their marks, they get back down. Why? So that he can go in and out of every single game. Right. So there's no game that's adrift on its own that has to be put with anything else. He can literally take the 25 games we did and mix and match them like, you know, uh, a Russian doll and put them anywhere they can go. So we'll get, like, for instance, I shot one taping this year and I've gotten paid, I think for two or three shows because that's how many we've got out of the shows that we tape because literally we can take one bit that I was in that goes over here. And then, so the other hour is spent with the camera on Aisha, the host camera. Right. We'll be right back after this. Here comes Jeff to do this. Yeah. We'll see you in a minute. Thank you very much. And so there's always an out wisely produce this from a television standpoint here's the easiest way and the most efficient way to get to this and smartly front loading it with the laughs and the improv and doing all the traffic cop crap at the end so nobody's caught short because He's probably editing it himself or is there. <laughs> He's thinking, oh, shit. How many years did he go? Oh, God damn. If I just had a transition here yep. before he went, that's it. I'm shooting 40 minutes of transitions at the end of every one of these. And that's it. I'm covering my ass. And then he found, holy smokes, I can actually get multiple episodes out of this. When we finished shooting on ABC, uh, we did four full seasons on ABC and one like summer replacement. Remember summer replacements? That's how old we are. Uh, we did a summer replacement series. The first one, like six. When we finished, uh, ABC had the, in those days, I think it was called the family channel. And I think it's called Freeform. and yeah. uh, two full seasons of it because it was in the, it was in the can. That's how well that paper thing works. And he, I can see him running around with his clipboard and he'll go like this. And I know that he's thinking this will go with this. This will go with this. This will go with this. So, and I've done a bunch of other improv shows on TV. I did not do the NBC one, which was called, I'm so glad you're here. I think that was an Australian format, but I've done all the other ones. There was a groundling one. We did one with Drew called Improvaganza. We did one with Drew called green screen that had animation. I've done them all. And none of them shoot that way. And so you're there all fucking day. And at the end of the day, you have to try to find the two things that worked and pull them out, which is no way to shoot improv. Improv, like I said, the main thing is if it tanks, it's gone. Yeah. We don't fucking beat a dead horse into the ground. There's no 20 minute anything. Right. The longest you're going to be suffering is 30 seconds a minute. Wow, that's impressive. Uh, worst improv gig you did? Anything pop into your head? Because that can be, I mean, it, it, it's such a razor's edge anyway that, you know, the slim common 
ground between great and possibly bad is a high wire act. So you're falling a lot. I mean, there's a lot of bad improv gigs, but does any like jump out at you where you go, oh my God, this isn't even improv anymore. This isn't even comedy. This is just some weird theatrical survival show. What? Yeah. Oh yeah. Many, Jeff, many. Uh, Fortunately with the group I'm in now, not so much. We don't really run into that. Uh, Several corporate gigs come to mind. Um, Oh yeah. Uh, we did one in Hawaii once where, um, they were all like Cadillac dealers and they hadn't the slightest notion of who we were or what the TV show is. They literally, they were all in their seventies and they'd been golfing for three days. And then we were their big prize at the end. Whoever planned the party exactly got the wrong. What they really would have loved was, uh, Jimmy Brogan or, 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 you know, someone. Uh, or, or someone who told golf jokes, like you know, a really old-fashioned comic yeah, that just. They needed Michael Finney, the golfing magician. Michael Finney, Michael Finney, golf jokes, and then <laughs> Michael Finney could have come out there and say, "Michael, then just get him with some golf joke." Uh, My uh, did you have preden- do you have mutual climax? No, we have prudential. Um, so I love Michael. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, uh, yeah. So we you guys here, come out to. Cadillac dealers after three days of golf and probably two and a half hours of pork chops. Oh yeah. And drink. And then we got up, they didn't know who we were. And you know how you go to each other. We're in the group. Like, you know, we don't have to go long, right? We, you know, keep, you know, they want like an hour. Like we could do probably 45, well, fucking 90 minutes later, no laughs at all. And uh, I remember we went in the dressing room and I became hysterical at that point and absolutely could not control my laughter because I said, we were, by the way, this was in Hawaii. We were flown to the big island of Hawaii and we were there for three days. So I was crying, laughing. I go, they spent all this money on us. They flew us out here and they just stared at us. And Chip was really mad. Charles Aston, who from televisions Nashville was in the group at the time. He was furious. I remember. And I cried laughing. Then I went back to my palapa with Colin and I smoked a joint and there were sea turtles down near the sea, right near my. Uh, uh, not a pull-up, but my lanai in Hawaii. And there was a, a, a flashlight in the room. And I remember saying to Colin, we got really high. And I said, come with me. And I handed him the flashlight. He's like, what the fuck are we doing? I'm like, walk down to the beach with me. Fucking sea turtles. And a sign above them that said, do not disturb the sea turtles. And I said, Colin, how do the turtles know to go under the sign? Um, <laughs> and then one time we were doing it. Uh, in uh Oh, you're asking me about the worst ones. Oh, you can do any. So we were doing a giant benefit for Parkinson's in New York City. And I mean, it. Leonardo DiCaprio and Muhammad Ali were at the front table. Wow. It was $5,000 a seat. So each table had 10 seats. So each table was $50,000. Right. Two guys in the world who have the best jabs. Right. Hello. And the OJs. This will give you an idea of what year it was. Dennis Leary, Whoopi, uh, us, uh, uh, the OJs. Uh, I can't even remember who else. And um, Michael J. Fox flew us all out to do this, right? So we get up, and this is a group of millionaires and New York Society people. And we're in some really fancy place. They put us at the Waldorf Astoria. Jeff. So (laughs) we get up to do improv and it's been stand up and music and shit, which they haven't paid any attention to at all. 
And uh, we get someone out of the audience and um, she's got a wig and she won't answer any questions and we die on our ass. And when we finish, Whoopi's hosting. I walk by her. And I mean, when we left the stage, it was like, uh, um, you know, VJ saying it just made a dick joke or whatever. There was a, <laughs> you know, what does <laughs> Bernie Bruce say? Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, right? Nothing, right? Like frozen waste. Roscoe Lee Brown is there. Box. These are the things from there. It's just nothing. And Whoopi walks by me and I went, follow that motherfucker. And <laughs> she fucking fell over laughing. The woman uh, we brought, the woman we brought to the audience was Jelaine Maxwell. Oh, wow. Who is now doing 20 years in prison. <laughs> she was at this party and she got up in a wig and wouldn't say what she did or where she was from, but she thought it was really funny. Uh, that That's one, one of the best exits from a stage. We've got to go, but I want to hit two things. First of all, the plug for the album, of course, uh, I'm talking to Greg Proops, the great, hilarious stand-up improv artist. And um, the album is called French Drug Deal. It's out now. You can get it virtually. Where can you get it? Uh, you can go to my website, gregproops.com. You can go to uh, Special Thing Records. There's a link for it somewhere. Be, I don't know. Go to gregproops.com. There's a big sign of me there. Um, and it's called French Drug Deal. It's on Apple. It's on Spotify. It's on every bloody thing. And it's worth it. If there's a, if there's a Blue Note vibe to a stand-up right now, you're it. Uh, Thanks, at brother. the club. in You know, that whole feel is fantastic. Before we go, uh, 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 indulge me. Uh, on your thoughts on the demise of the Pac-12 as an as a San Francisco guy, right? So now the Pac-12 has how many? Two. They've moved. They Everybody, two. yeah, they have they've, two teams left: Washington State and Oregon State. Right. So Stanford's gone. USC, UCLA, yeah, Cal, UCLA, USC, Washington, and Oregon are joining the Big Ten. Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah are joining the uh, Big 12. And Where's Cal and Stanford going? Stanford, Cal are joining um, the ACC along with SMU. Okay. I, I don't begin to understand it, Jeff. I've always thought that the NCAA was um, inconceivably corrupt and horrible, and they, they never paid the students really what they deserved. And there's that whole, oh, my God, they're amateurs. It's like, honey, they're not amateurs. Not when, not when college football is so lucrative. Like college basketball, you can't really say it's not professional. So yeah, why not treat them right? Um, I, I think it's goofy. And I, yeah. I don't appreciate it. But then I'm old. And so in 10 or 15 years, probably people won't give a shit anymore. But yeah. I and you will remember all the classic days when all the West Coast teams play the West Coast teams. And it was a big deal. And then there was the Pac-8 and the Big Ten. And yeah. everything represented their own. I think it's a little bit of the corporization of of sports. What I would like to see is compensation. And um, I would also like to see the NFL owners all put into uh, a barge together and sent far, far away where they can no longer harm the beloved game of football. Uh, there's no care for the football the players. Or are the only team with no owner. There's, 
they are the true uh, socialism of the NFL, which has to irritate the other NFL. Uh, you know, it does. It'd be fun I, I to escort, like them, escort them all onto a barge because I don't think any of them would notice until they're too far out to sea. Imagine who is the the irretrievable jerk who is going to not own. Is he still going to own the Washington team? Uh, no. Dan. Uh, they got a new owner who seems uh, uh, somewhat palatable for a billionaire. Right. This you guy know. wasn't aware that you were, weren't supposed to hit on every girl that walked into the room. Somehow yeah. that message had eluded him over his privileged lifetime. Yeah. Uh, then there's Kraft, who was literally caught in a massage parlor, and nothing has ever happened with that. You're, apparently, yeah. you're allowed to do that, evidently. You can be a John. Uh, getting a happy ending massage and, and Dan you know Snyder would friends- literally yeah he would walk out of a a closed room getting his tie up and a half naked woman and go hey someone get her a job you know what I mean yeah <laughs> that's, yeah that's how they approach. so I think to, to not to put too fine a point on it uh I, I'm, but I'm a big believer in all of that the the owners of all the sports I think are the are the ruination of sport uh. Little children love sports, and that's when you learn to love sports when you're a kid. And you really, really need people who, and this is going to sound so fucking Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but you really need wholesome fucking activities. Sports should not be corrupt and crooked. Sports should not be full of people who abuse each other. It shouldn't be full of unwanted concussions and injuries that no one cares about. I loved sports so much when I was little, and that's when I became a fan. So imagine you're a little girl now, and you've got uh, Shakari Richardson, and you've got a uh, Coco Golf, and you've got uh, the the women's football team, and then so the Spanish women team wins, and you're like, I love football. And then oh wait, the GM kissed the girl on the mouth, and then now he's like, what do these bitches want anyway? It was only a kiss. Like hey everybody, you know. <laughs> We, it's like a, a cockroach instinct that men right? cannot stamp out completely. It's it, no, it's it's so I just like FIFA and the and the and the Olympic uh, group that puts the Olympics on and the NCAA and all that. Yeah, I have great distrust of all the organizations. The bottom line is, I'm like I'm going to do, and I'll, I'll let you live your life. I want to plug one last thing. I'm going to be in Kansas City this weekend. I don't know when this podcast comes out, but I'll tell it's you. It's dropping anyway. tomorrow. Oh, awesome. For, uh, Saturday, the, um, or Friday, the, uh, where am I? Eight. There we are. Saturday, the 9th, I'll be in Kansas City at the Gem Theater across from the Negro League Museum. Um, oh, cool. And we're doing the Hall of Game. And I've been uh, lucky enough to be asked to host. I hosted it before the plague, and then we haven't done one. We didn't do one in 20, 21, or 22. Oh. This is, it's been three fucking years. And this year, that's all pitchers. And um, Mudcat Grant, the great pitcher who pitched for the Twins uh, and was in the 1965 World Series, hit a home run, um, wrote a book called Black Aces about every black pitcher in the major leagues that won 20 games. And now, of course, since since he wrote it, C.C. Sabathia and David Price have won 20 games. So this year they're celebrating it. And I'm not kidding, Jeff. They're giving out awards to Doc Gooden, Dontrell Willis, Vita Blue, and Dave Stewart's going to sit in for Vita Blue, and Al Downing. 
Oh, wow. Remember Al Downing? Sure. Pitch for the Most, Yanks, pitch for the Dodgers. Sure, a great pitcher. Mostly not right? giving up Aaron's. It, uh, precisely. He gave up Al, Henry Aaron's. And um, so I get to host that and, and um, I do little jokes and then we, and then I get to interview the players and we have lunch and we have dinner and it's the greatest event, Jeff. You would lose your mind. The Negro Leagues Museum was so cool. And everybody talks about Jackie and the history of the game and, and uh, Jackie Robinson for your listeners and uh, uh, how important he was to change America and what the Negro Leagues kind of mean socially to the United States, not just the horrible part about them being segregated, but what they were able to make out of their world. Right. And then that world gave us Willie Mays and Ernie Banks and Henry Aaron and, you know. And Cepeda and McCovey. Oh, and, and everybody. And so and, and it goes on and on to today, you know. Yeah. Unbelievable. Dusty Baker's a manager. Yeah. And Dusty Baker was on a team with Henry Aaron. Henry Aaron was on the Indianapolis clowns that was in the Negro leagues. Right. So there's always, it's, it's really a through line. Yeah. It's not like it's yesterday. Right, right, right. It's not like it's a million years ago. It's yesterday. Well, that's impressive. And uh, boy, that's a fun gig. That'd be great. Well, oh. listen, we're going to get you back. We'll do this again. Cause clearly we've just scratched the surface. Um, and uh, we'll have, uh, we'll have fun another time. Folks, Greg Proops, catch him on whose line is it anyway, appearing on free form. And um, it's on the CW now. That's why nobody ever sees it. (laughs) They're just they're just in an office making shows out of one set of improv that they did in uh, 1997. There's it's still cranking out shows. So our shoulders a gemstone at this point. (laughs) And uh, of course, uh, his stand up catch him anywhere he plays. And then uh, this weekend in Kansas City uh, for the Negro Leagues benefit. And then, of course, uh, the new album, French Drug Deal. Uh, Go to Greg's website, gregproops.com, and catch that. Greg, thanks for coming on, and uh, let's do this again. What a pleasure, Jeff. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, see ya. 